This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Marks of a Child, Part Two," was recorded at Wellspring Church on December twenty ninth, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is First John chapter three, verses one to three. Today's reading is First John chapter three, verses one through three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And every one who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Looking at the there we go the last three marks of what it means to be a child of God. And so last week we talked about righteousness and love as being the first two marks, and today we'll look at three more. First is, is to be a part of God's family. And that's pretty obvious. Verses one and two. The second is to have a new identity. And that's in verse two. And then, lastly, as to know and to be sure of our destiny, in verses two and three. So we'll look again at verses one and two regarding the family. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him, beloved. We are God's children now. I mean, this is really obvious. We are a pod, part of God's family. And John is referring to Christians as children of God. That that is to say that we're not just following a religion, and we're not simply part of a religious social club. Although there are many different people who have gathered together in churches for the purpose of socializing or getting connected to people, in the end, that's. Such a, a very surface level view of what it means to be a part of God's people. That is to say that we actually are family. It's not that we will be or that we might be, but we are God's family. If we are, and this is a big if, the condition is that we're in Christ, that we actually believe Him. That we have surrendered our life to Him, that we follow Him, that we make His ways, His word, the greatest of all pursuits of our lives. And if that is the case, then those of us who believe that truly are family. Paul describes it very similarly in First Corinthians twelve and Romans twelve that we're not we're more than just physical families. Together, even if we are related, and some of us here are related to one another through blood, but in actuality, there's even a greater level of connectedness, and that's the fact that we are family together. And just like your family, and I don't know, some of you might think this way, but if you have a brother or sister, and you might think, "God, why did you give me him? Why did you give me her?" But really, you you didn't have a choice. You don't have a choice as to what child you have or what brother or sister you have if you are blood related, because that's who God has given to you. They're related to you. You you don't get to pick and choose based on your personality type and theirs or life experience. So 
part of a, being part of a family is the recognition that the people around you, brother, sister, mother, father, son, daughter, grandparents, they are all given to you and you have no choice in the matter. And very similarly, it's the same spiritually speaking. That is to say that when we gather together, we are in Christ, John is telling us that we're part of God's family. And just like our physical families, we don't get to pick and choose people based on common interest, whether people are like us or even do like us, that regardless of who they are, we are in Christ together. And just like a physical family, a spiritual family is exactly the same. So we don't get to pick and choose it. What the implications of that is that our network of people is not based on anything that we are externally. So whether someone looks like you, has the same career path, has the same educational background, their status, social status, economic status, their political party, their ethnicity, all of these things have no bearing on our relationship to one another. Although the sad part of it all is that we make it too much of a bearing in our relationship to one another. And you have to really stop and think about that. Why is it that those external characteristics have such a great import in our lives when the Bible tells us that those are very secondary, tertiary issues? They don't bind at all, but we think they do. We, we buy into that mirage that something external binds us together. I and mean, that's not what the Bible says. According to the Bible, it is the fact that we are brothers and sisters. And therefore, this is what we're supposed to do when we encounter brothers and sisters. We're supposed to treat them as brothers and sisters. So think about that for a moment. How do you treat your brother or your sister? Well, hopefully there's some level of warmth. Hopefully. Not always. Because of sin, not always. But there's also a desire to get to know that person. That person matters to you. They're not just some stranger, an acquaintance passing by. But this person matters to you. And so the way they matter is you are concerned about their life, their family, their health, their spiritual life. And so we ask to pray for them. One of the reasons why as elders, we gather together every Sunday and we pray together corporately with you all for the sick, for the injured, for those who are down or who are facing death and trials. It's because we are family. We talk about that word family so easily, but we don't maybe grasp as to the implications of what that should mean to us, to me. And so therefore, when I think about my own physical family, it should be more than just, well, that's who I spend time with and adore and like and invest in and count upon. But really, that should be the case for our spiritual family. And so we pray for the sick. We talk about struggles and weaknesses, not just strengths and victories, which is far too easy to do. But we actually are willing to humble ourselves by talking about our weaknesses we invite people over to our home. You know, eating together is a big part of family life. The, the family that 
regularly sits down at a dinner and eats at least one meal a day together, you know, you've heard the old expression, the family that eats together stays together. And that really is the case, not just physically, but spiritually. When we eat together, we enjoy each other's fellowship as well as we get to know one another. Meals are an excellent way upon which we get to know one another, to care for one another. We serve one another with our many gifts. And for those of you who are rearing children, you know some of the great challenges it is to have children have a heart of service, of an initiating heart of service, that they come up to you and say, Mom, Dad, I'd like to take out the trash. Or they don't even say it, they just do it. And you just look at the trash and you say, Wow, it's so empty. How did that happen? And your child did it just because they have a heart of service. And it's what we want of people, of our families, because by doing that, it really is an expression of love, isn't it? And that's what we want to raise as well as in our spiritual family. The reason we serve is not to pay a debt or to do things out of obligation or just because you're told to do it. And I know many, again, parents who are regularly saying, I wish I didn't have to tell you to pick up your toys. I wish you would just do it. I wish I didn't have to tell you you had to clean up your room. And and when you tell them, maybe five times, ten times, a thousand times, that's still something, even if they do it, it's not something that you say, that's exactly what I want. Actually, what you really want is a child to serve the family based on their heart. Spiritually speaking, it's exactly what we want. We long for a people to serve not because someone told you to do it, but because you love the Lord, you want to honor Him, and you give of yourself to Him. That's what families do. Families look to one another, they support one another, they pray for one another. They're there when you're in times of need. They're not just there when things are going well. Also, when there's conflict, we don't just give up. We press on, we persevere, we fight through it. And we battle through it and we seek reconciliation. We pursue peace. Secondly, another mark of a child is, this is, again, obvious, is they have an, a new identity. In verse 2, we're told, John says, beloved or loved ones, we are God's children now. And there's a lot in that one sentence that speaks of a new identity. First, John starts with this very special word, beloved, loved ones. Meaning that, just as we shared last week, this has to be a regular reminder to yourself. You are loved. It took quite a cost, an infinite cost, for that love to be expressed to you. The cost of God's Son. And John's saying, never forget that. That is the title it's sort of the title of who you are. It's your essence. Secondly is that if you notice, it's a, this is a present continual tense statement. We are God's children. And just in case if you didn't realize it, now. So it's not we will be when we're with the Lord one day. When we're in heaven, we are God's children. We will be God's children. This is the case today. In this very moment, as you sit in this very room, regardless of what your life has been like, if you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you have followed him, you are currently a child of God. This isn't a fantasy. 
This is what John is telling us so plainly from the text, that if you are a believer, that you are God's child. I've uh, quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones many times, pastor of Westminster Chapel, and he speaks on this topic. He says that the forgetting of this truth, that we are God's child, he describes it this way, the, it's the greatest weakness of all in the Christian church, that we fail to realize what we are or who we are. Is it not the honest truth that most of the unhappiness that we experience in this life is due to our failure to realize this truth? We are full of complaints and unhappiness. They arise partly from our own faults, partly from what others do to us, or from what the world as a whole does to us. But all our unhappiness is ultimately traced back to this. We do not see ourselves as the children of God. This is what he is saying is the essence of why we struggle so much as a Christian with joy, with our sorrows, with our desires to want to be loved but never feeling enough loved or significant enough that we pursue every sort of pursuit to try to fill that hole. And so think of it this way. Ten people can come up to you and give you a word of blessing and encouragement. And one person... Maybe the last person comes up to you and criticizes you. So when you go to sleep that night, what stands? What, what just sprouts out at you? What jumps out at you? It's that one word of criticism. Again, 10 people could give words of blessing, but one person criticizes you. And suddenly our hearts are filled with dismay. And we can't get that echo out of our head of saying, just hearing the words of criticism towards us. This is the, the natural forgetting due to our own sinfulness of what Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about as if we could only know this truth, that we are a child of God, oh, how much happier we would be. How much more peace would we have in this world? But because we are so consumed with our own self-righteousness, it really swallows us up. I mean, really, we can have such a wonderful family, a spouse who loves us, children, though not perfect, but generally obey, generally are faithful. And yet, through it all, every day is a testing day. It's a day where we are struggling with perhaps a child not succeeding in athletics or in school, not getting straight A's. And suddenly, that is a determination of our weakness and we get irritated, frustrated. Or perhaps the opposite. You're watching TV and you see the spelling bee, the national spelling bee, and you, you, uh, watch this person spell this incredibly long, difficult word. And the first thought that comes to your mind is, I wish my child was like that. Or maybe you hear about someone winning the Intel science competition and, or there's a, a, a beauty contest and you think, I wish I was that beautiful or I wish I was that intelligent. That, is still the forgetting of this idea that we are God's children now. You will never be, you can never be greater than how you are by this statement alone. That there is nothing that anyone can say, no competition you can win, no lottery you can win, no amount of money you have in your account, no matter who you marry or whether you marry or not, that this statement, beloved, we are God's children now, has to be the defining reality of your identity. And the Bible, it 
spends the whole, from Genesis to Revelation, just pounding this truth home. That your status, identity, and position rests on this truth. On nothing else but this truth. Again, it's hard because we live in such a a meritocracy. A world where what you do gains you status, position, and identity. That's the world that we live in. And it doesn't stop from, we get grades, we get marks, we get metrics at work, at school. And we've been inculcated into this system. We think that that's how we're supposed to determine people's value. And yet the Bible gives us a very different picture of value, of identity, that it's not resting on that. You know, there's someone who understood this so well. His name is Peter, the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he quotes Proverbs where it reminds us that every dog goes back to its vomit. And for those of you who have dogs, you probably have seen a dog eat its own vomit. And the purpose of that very verse, that statement, is to say that though we know that our identity is in Christ, that we are God's children now, we forget. We go back to our vomit of identity and success based on some sort of merit. Whether it's religious, such as reading the Bible, or praying a lot, or whether it's irreligious or not even religious at all, such as getting a certain type of job or a certain grade or getting to a certain university and college, that that is the determiner of our value. Now, Peter understood this differently. And I want to read to you a story from Matthew that tells the story of Peter. And it's a very famous story. Many of you know it. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now this is Peter. He was around Jesus for three years. You know, for those three years, Peter was not just one of the 12 disciples. He was one of the inner three Wherever Jesus went, he took Peter, James, and John. When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter went with them. Peter really had a special place amongst the disciples. And if you know anything about the Bible and and Jesus' life, you know this to be true. So you can also imagine when the crowds, 5,000 people, men, are there. So that means probably about fifteen to 20,000, if you count women and children, are gathered around when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus was around thousands of people many times. And if you've ever been to a context where you see someone famous, if you go to places like Los Angeles and go to Hollywood and you see one famous person, it just is, you get starstruck, right? 
you are just struck and you want to you want to just touch them or talk to them. And you can imagine when you see the inner crowd of people, you say, I wonder what it feels like to be like them. I would imagine that when there's thousands of people following Jesus and Peter is right there next to Jesus, that that 10,000th person is looking at Peter and there's a little bit of envy saying, I wish I could be like him. I wish I could have that type of access. This is what Peter had. Now take that person and then now he's at this place where, what is he saying? Instead of claiming identity, he says, I do not know the man. He's distancing himself. He doesn't want to be thought of in connection to Jesus at all. He doesn't want to be seen with him. He doesn't want to even be, have any type of reputation. In fact, people are saying, you, you were with him. I saw you. And not only that, you speak his accent. You're a Galilean, a northern person. So they had a certain accent, just like different places around the country here in the United States have different accents. So Peter had the same accent as Jesus. Just having the same accent, he was so afraid and distancing himself from identity, identifying himself with Jesus that he started calling curses. He started swearing, you know, basically throwing expletives at himself and saying, this is how much I want you to know I do not know him. That distancing of identity is why Peter says every dog goes back to its vomit. And in this case, Peter is that dog going back to the same vomit. So how does Jesus respond to that? If you read in John chapter 21, you find out that actually Jesus calls him three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I do. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. It's three times. I don't think that's a coincidence in light of the fact that G uh, Peter denied Jesus three times because what had to happen is the reminder of the identity to remember truly what God had done for Peter because he had forgotten. And what had driven that fear, anxiety, those two things, fear and anxiety, it really keeps us from identifying with Christ. You know, as I've been preparing this sermon series, I, uh, I've been, I, I don't have a office yet. One day, Lord willing, one day. But I do a lot of my work at Starbucks and I've gotten to know different people and, um, I have this really big commentary. It's by, uh, Martin Lloyd Jones and it says life. It's in big capital letters on this book and the book is like, this big and this wide. And it says, Life with Christ, in really big letters. And I stick it on my table. And people are passing by. You know, this is the Bay Area, and some people don't care. Some people are antagonistic, belligerent towards a book like that. And in my heart of hearts, there is a, a, a battle raging. There's part of me that's sort of saying, I wonder if... Maybe I put this book down here underneath. It's it's literally like a bulletin board that says Life with Christ, right? And I was walking by, and as I was just thinking and processing this in my own heart, what was happening, I walked by another table, and there was this woman who was sitting there well-dressed, and she had on her table four magazines. All of them were the Watchtower. 
And she had laid them out intentionally so that someone would come up to her and say, so oh, what is that? What is that magazine? Here's my, here's me with my gigantic Life with Christ book, and here's this person. We're sitting next to each other, battling each other's, you know, displays. But, you know, it dawned on me that this book, the struggle, even in a secret part of my heart, why was I even feeling at all a little nervous about having a book like that and then seeing this woman, who is a Jehovah's Witness, putting out her magazines so widely, hoping someone would come. And so I took out my book and I left it there fully at the furthest edge as I could. But it's a reminder that fear and anxiety causes us to sort of squelch our identity. And that keeps us from experiencing God's grace in our lives. Seeing God work miraculously, seeing people saved, people transformed, Peter had this heart too. So it's not bad company per se to struggle with this. In fact, Peter knows that you will struggle with this. But do not just simply cast it aside and say, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, well. But rather recognize, why do I deal with this? What am I missing here? And we have to understand that what we're missing is that we are failing to remember that we are children of God right now. And therefore, it should change and transform the way that we act and look today. It means that you are today. This is the simple implication of this. And it's so powerful is this, is that when John is saying we are God's children now, that means that it's not you're going to progressively become more God's child, but rather that how you are today as God's child you are looked upon by him that way, that it's going to be the same, that identity is the same as you will be a 100,000 years from today. There's no difference. In terms of who you are, at the core, there's no difference. You are still a child of God. And that should be astounding to you, that you are loved as much by God today as you will be a 100,000 years from today. You are Jesus' brother and sister because of what he has done for you as much today as you will be a 100,000 years from today. That is astounding love. And if we could only see what we truly are rather than the way the world defines beauty, success, power, influence, intelligence, we would be so awestruck by our own selves that we wouldn't feel as though we need something outside of us to change us to be significant. And so then it frees us that when we are pursuing any activity, pursuit, career goal, our dreams, whenever we're pursuing those things, we're never doing it out of a sense of self-motivation. But instead we're doing it because we know that we've been freed in Christ. Our position never changes. And that is due to the high cost of the ransom blood of Christ for us. We are adopted and fully welcomed with full rights, full heirs as sons and daughters. Thirdly is then that this is our final mark, is that we are destined for glory. 
verses 1 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that we see dimly right now. Everything is not so clear. At least we don't see Jesus fully as he is. doesn't mean that we don't see him at all. But what we do see, we see dimly. Because when we do see him as he is, you will have no words. In fact, you won't have any strength in your knees to stand. And the way I know this is it happened to John. In Revelation, um, we get a picture that John has of Jesus. Now, here's the thing is, John had seen Jesus for three years, right? Lived with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. For three years, he had seen Jesus. So, seemed like a normal guy. Another thing is that John also saw him when he was crucified. He was one of the only disciples there at the cross. And then John also saw him when he resurrected. So John had a really great picture of Jesus. John lastly saw Jesus ascend to heaven. If, if you could have one person's witness of Jesus, it was John. John saw Jesus fully all the way. But John saw something very different in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16. He describes Jesus this way. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. I have no idea how that must have appeared, what that looks like. But what I do know is what happened to John when he saw that. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, John had the best closest eyewitness account of Jesus. But when he saw Jesus as he truly is, he couldn't even stand. He fell as though he were dead. It was so breathtaking and stupefying that there was nothing that he could do in his presence. And that's what John says, according to this letter, that we will experience when we see him. We shall see him as he is. And I think we have no idea how significant knowing this helps us today. That is to say that we have a very small view of, of our God, of who Jesus is. And when you have a gigantic view of God, God is sovereign. God is Lord. God is King. For him, you know, 10,000 years is but a blink of an eye. You know, I started thinking about that for a moment, and I think, why should God care for someone like me? Really? You know, for if imagine if time passed that quickly. So think of what happens in thousands of years. We've had the Hitlers of the world, Stalin, Caesar, you know, Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes. I mean, there's just different pharaohs in thousands of years' time. And within that time, if you read history books, you get caught up in it, and you really think, well, these are terrible people. But when time is compressed to but a blink, that 10,000 years is but a blink of an eye, why should anyone really care? Why? Like, I started thinking, why does God even care about 
what happens with us. Because if, if really in a moment is 10,000 years, then if time is compressed that shortly, what does it really matter to God? Whether there's evil persons or dictators or nuclear wars, because time is nothing to him. If you really sit there and wrap your brain around that for a moment, what it did for me is it made me think, so why does God care about me? Why does God care about my decisions? What career I do? See, that's the thing is that the more I start focusing on me and, well, I have this pain in my elbow, and I do. I have a pain in my elbow, and it hurts, and I pray, oh, Lord, can you please help me with my elbow? And then, um, you know, my kids are here and doing this, and the church is like this. But if God is a God over where 10,000 years is but a blink of an eye and literally a snap of the fingers and it goes by like that, why would God care? And why do we get so caught up with the fact that God is, he should care for me. He should love me. If he really was fair and just and faithful and good, then everything I do should matter. Do you see the absurdity of that type of thinking? In fact, what we should really be is astounded by God. That God does care. That he has numbered the hairs on our heads. That when every little bird that falls from the sky, God knows it to happen. To me, that is, it's just astounding. And when we have that, then we're able to go into this world and regardless of the trials that come, we have no fear. We're not overwrought with worry. We're not in trepidation over, why is this happening to me? Why does this happen? Instead, we can trust. We can believe. We can know that God is faithful and true and good. What we have to have, what John is telling us is that we will see the God of the universe and we will fall to his feet as though dead. And when we have that, then trust me, you will never feel in this moment, I'm missing out. How come I wasn't invited to that birthday party? I should have been invited. I mean, think about how ludicrous that is relative to this statement. Now, I'm not saying we should, that everything in this world matters nothing. But rather, it's to say that if we have the perspective of God is that big, that sovereign, that holy, that gigantic, then I can be at peace when I'm not invited to that birthday party, when someone doesn't say sorry fast enough, I can have patience for people. I can show and extend mercy and grace. It's what we need most, is to have an enormous view of God. We need to see that everything we strive for here pales in comparison to what is to come. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, this is the ultimate thing that Christians are after. That is to say, to know God in this way. Christians don't get upset when they get married and to find out it wasn't everything it was cracked up to be. Christians don't get upset when they get into their career and they find out it wasn't everything it was cracked up to be. They don't get upset when they find that their bodies were at their peak and when their wisdom was at its depth and their wisdom is now peaking as their bodies are falling apart. Christians don't get upset by the brokenness of our world. Instead, we look to the God who is the author of the universe. And we trust him. We fully do. 
if these three marks of a child, we are God's family, our identity is in Christ alone, and we have an indescribable destiny, we will be able to withstand the challenges. And there have been challenges for some of you in 2019 that are beyond words. I know. I've been with some of you who have mourned, who have had real great difficulties. I don't know what 2020 is going to be like. It could be worse. Never think that always in this world, it'll always get better. It could be worse. But that's why we have John writing to us about an indescribable destiny. That we will see him as he is. It's not going to be like this forever. Even if it gets worse and worse and worse throughout our lives, it will not always be like that forever. There will be an end time of that when we trust in him. And the world cannot understand joy in the midst of sorrows. Contentment when there should be only complaint. Forgiveness when there should be vengeance. You know, that's the world can't understand that. And I know so many of you are pursuing that in faith. And you're living that life. And I say, press on. Do not give up the fight of faith. 2019 might have had its challenges. 2020, I can't promise a better existence, at least in terms of physically. But certainly in Christ, it can be much better. It will be better. Living in light of the cross, of who he is, of having a big view of God, that changes not just us, but the world forever. Let me just close with a story. Um, it comes from the life of a man named Clarence Jordan. He was a man of real great aptitude. He had doctoral degrees in Greek, Hebrew, and agriculture. Three very interesting, <laughs> two, two sort of very different fields. As gifted as he was, he, his whole life was dedicated to serve the poor. And in the 1940s, he founded a farm called Koinonia Farm in Americus, Georgia. This is in the 1940s. And so what he decided to do is, in this farm, in the 40s, in the deep south, have, have a farm where poor blacks and poor whites could live together in Christian community. What a vision. In the 40s, in the south. So it was a multiracial community. And during that time, this farm, it, it faced a lot of severe hostility, especially from church members. People in the town tried to do everything they could to stop Clarence Jordan. They boycotted his produce. They slashed the tires of his workers' automobiles. And then finally, one night in 1954, the Ku Klux Klan came and tried to get rid of him once and for all. So they set fire to every building on the farm except Clarence's house, which they riddled with bullets. And the next day, a newspaper reporter came out to survey the farm's remains. And to the reporter's astonishment, Dr. Jordan was there busy working on the field, hoeing and planting. And the reporter said, I heard the awful news, and I came out to do a story on the tragedy of your farm closing. And Jordan kept working the soil while the reporter kept pestering him for a response, finally saying, well, Dr. Jordan, you got... Two of them PhDs, and you've put 14 years into this farm, and there's nothing left of it at all. So just how successful do you think you've been? 
And Dr. Jordan stopped working, leaned on his hoe, turned to the reporter, looked straight at, uh, straight in the eye at him and said, about as successful as the cross. And then he said, sir, I don't think you understand us. What we are about is not success, but faithfulness. We're staying good day. And when I read that, I would imagine John saying the same and Peter. See, we're not about success, but faithfulness. That's the response of a child. You stay because you're a child. It's not, and a, a, a godly parent does not look at success as in, well, they have a certain job, they married this person, they have this type of, uh, went to this school, but rather, success is all about faithfulness. And that's what the Lord is looking for us, from us. Not whether, because you're always a child, but will you be faithful? Will you trust him? Will you follow him? Even when the whole house is burnt down and enemies come, will you still say, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. I hope you do. Hope you do in 2020. I'm excited to see what God does through you. Let's pray together. Father, we bless your name. We thank you for your great and wondrous promises. We realize that we have made you far too small in our eyes. And because of that, it has robbed us of joy. But you have been faithful to the end. And help us, O oh Lord, to see just how great of a God you are. Jesus, because when we are in Christ Jesus, one day we will see you face to face. And in that first moment, I have to believe we'll be exactly like John. We will fall at your feet as though dead because we have been so awestruck by your majesty, your splendor. And yet, you will pick us up, you will hug us, you will welcome us home. I pray, O oh Lord, for those who have carried heavy burdens in 2019. I pray for the prodigal who has run away from you. I pray for those who have hardened their hearts. I pray that they would realize just whom they're hardening their hearts towards. That they would see that there is only one God, one Lord. And I pray, O oh Lord, that they would trust in you. They run back to you. I pray for those who have mourned, who are tired, who are weary. Father, your word tells us even youths grow tired and weary. Young men and women strung, uh, stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And they will soar on wings of eagles. So help them, O oh Lord. And Lord, remind us through this table that you will never leave us nor forsake us as you so wondrously do. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.